Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. On today's episode, we offer part two of our continued discussion regarding universal design with Eric Perrier and Dominic Iacobucci of BHDP. If you enjoy what you hear, we encourage you to rate, subscribe, and give us a review. We also invite your suggestions of other architectural and interior design-related topics. I am your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist at BHDP. Let's pick up where we left off. Now, I had um, the earliest that I'd heard of universal design. I, it was about 10 years ago, early in my career, I was working with a company that was designing um, a bank. And the client wanted to be more accommodated. They were thinking about universal design. And their solution was instead of having one teller counter that was at wheelchair height and one that was at the regular height or whatever, 42 inches, whatever that was, um, they said, well, what if we just split the difference or create one that works for both? And the lead designer happened to be six foot five. And he said, if you make this lower counter, then I can't use it anymore. Um, where, how does universal design work in a scenario like that? I, I don't mean to spring a specific it's problem a, from 10 years ago on you. It's, but. it's an interesting problem, especially when we talk about workplace, and it comes up all the time, <laughs> even just with the work surface right. desk, which is essentially what you're talking about, a transaction top, exactly. work surface, kind of go hand in hand. The reality of that is it is that dynamic. So you've got that extreme of someone that's six seven, I yeah. think you said, maybe even seven foot, but you've got on the other extreme that there's people that are four foot, right. three foot, something. And and when you start talking about that, that's where these ideas of the sit to stand desks start to come into play and they start to create even more value. Cause now you're you're accommodating multiple different body types and right. sizes, but then you're also starting to accompany people that may you know, have some type of ergonomic issues that they're dealing with, uh, comfort issues, making sure that you're getting rid of carpal tunnel, all these things that come into play. Now, for your situation that you were asking about the bank, the, the reality of universal design is, is thoughtful design that tries to uh, think about all the situations. And there's no perfect solution. And, and that's kind of what we've started to realize and struggle with, right? Is that how do we do enough and, and realize that we're not going to have the silver bullet and it's not going to work for everyone. But if we can get the greatest population possible and we're being mindful, then we're doing the best that we can. So in that situation, it's creating different counter heights right. that accommodate multiple different body types and sizes and that they could work from, or it's creating something that can adjust and modify with the individual that's there. Now, from a universal standpoint, the adjusting solution is a much better solution than multiple different heights that are sure. stagnant. Because the multiple different heights that are stagnant is essentially saying that you've got a very specific experience for this person based off of who they are. As opposed to the one that can change is saying, it doesn't matter who you are, you can come up to this location and we'll modify this experience and the space will adjust to you so that you can have a proper experience. Right. Which, which is what makes Universal, I think, so dynamic as composed to ADA. ADA says, check, we've accommodated them all. Right. Whereas Universal Design says, well, yeah, but is it different for them? And is that difference enough that they're not actually having a universal experience? Yeah, like right. I feel like a second-class citizen because I have to go exactly. over to the short station over here or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, I think that you know, to bring it in, say, to the workplace, you know, we're seeing uh, this 
open office plans that have been uh, utilized in uh, workplace design for years at this point have uh, areas of private work, which would be you know sort of the the me space. And then there's the we space, which is the collaborative spaces where you can right. come together as teams and work together. And one of the solutions has always been this sort of high top table that is a feature table with you know some interesting lighting and chairs, tables to gather around. But the problem that we've seen and criticism that's been levied against that uh, in the built environment has been, well, what if you're in a wheelchair? So the key to developing an open office plan is to provide enough preference and changes in ability and to Dominic's point, adjustability in the system that it allows for uh, people to gather together if there is a person who can't meet at that table. And I think that one of the concepts that we want to keep in mind for universal design is this idea of um, sort of a, an environment that we can all use. And to your point, there's it, it might might bring into the umbrella of a well-being kind of concept, which is uh, yeah. something that comes out of you know the the lead and the, the uh, uh, program, which is you know if say you have the need to be more active during the day, sure, and you need to stand up more often, and sitting down all day. Uh, is troublesome to you, then it's great to have a standing desk. You can get up and be more active and your team can be more active. What becomes, uh, I think the issue is if you have to exclude someone from that conversation or that team effort. And I think that point, if there's a place that you can all gather and meet and have the same meeting and have the same gathering opportunity that includes everyone, that's, uh, I think, uh, successful. So the idea is choice in that case. Well, and, it, and it's interesting because you take that open office situation and you talk about one of the categories, one of the categories is body fit, right? It's the easiest one for us all to point to because we can physically see it. We physically understand it. The thing that makes me really intrigued with universal design is all the stuff that I can't see and that I don't understand and I know is there and occurring. Right. And that starts to get into the wellness piece that Eric started to talk about. But, you know, it's also anxieties, it's internal sicknesses. But with open office, the piece that's coming up a lot is this idea of privacy and acoustics. Mm -hmm. And oh, what yeah. is and what does acoustics do and how does that create a universal experience properly? And right now what we're trying to do is we're trying to ensure that we have experiences that allow everyone to do what they need to do. So if you've got the ADHD, can you be can you be more successful if you're sitting in a different type of zone than someone that's super extroverted and doesn't get distracted and can just yeah. go, right? Um, or if you're in a space and you're getting a lot of reverb, what does it do to you? Does it start to trigger a migraine headache? Does it change how you actually hear what is going on? Does it change your concentration? All these things are things that we're just now starting to talk about, right? Design of office space used to always be about the size of the space, the density of the space, the cost of the space, the schedule of the space. But with universal design, we're actually talking about holistic experience for all people that most of us aren't even thinking about and makes our lives better the second someone thinks about it. The most classic example that we talk about every once in a while is the curb cut. 
The, right. the curb cut is the most classic example of this, right? It was done very specifically for those in wheelchairs to be able to navigate across the city. But I think every single person can say that they've used it at some point in time. Yep. It's just an easier transition down, you know, to the street level. You're not dropping into a big giant puddle if you can help it. Yeah, yeah it's a transition. <laughs> maybe it's a stroller. Maybe it's luggage. Maybe yeah. it's uh, carrying something into an office. I mean, those really are bad, things. Yeah. And that curb cut story is a crazy story because it really only came to fruition because of activism. Really? Right. And, and that activism, it was uh, by a guy named Ed Roberts, and I, I believe it was in Berkeley, in the area of Berkeley, but he was disabled and he was an activist and they went to the point where they were actually putting in curb cuts at night and no one ever knew about it. But, but that's stuff that no one, Interesting, like yeah. we're not thinking about and we don't really realize that we need until it's there and then all of a sudden we're like, that's amazing. So I think that that's a great point because what one of the... Um, ideas embedded in universal design is that we're not designing for people. We should be designing with people. Uh, and I, I exactly. We, yeah. we want to bring people to the table who uh, at the earliest part of the design process have these conversations, talk through uh, the challenges that uh, are, might be encountered on the project, get their feedback, and try to design that into the best design practices that we can. Uh, what that means is, to Dominic's point, we may not be aware of uh, particular uh, pain points that people may have, and talking through that and being made aware of it allows us to help build solutions. And we can have that dialogue where we can say, well, you know, if we provided uh, this or we built this into the design, does that solve the problem? Yes, yeah. it does, or no, it doesn't. Right. And one, I want to say that one of the uh, big learning experiences I had was when we were working with kind of early on with a, a you know one of our best clients, or you know a Fortune 100 company, and they brought in uh, employees of, with various capacities, and there was uh, an engineer that they brought in who had, was legally blind. Right. She offered a tremendous amount of insight uh, to me from my perspective about uh, how she per perceives space, how she navigates through a space. And I still draw upon that experience that I learned from our conversations in uh, my work today. Sure. And on the same token, I uh, did, here's a little story, uh, worked on a, um, what we considered a fully accessible restroom uh, renovation that met all of the requirements of the ADA it was designed per the guidelines and then we layered into it uh, recommendations from uh, literature from the universal design uh, solutions and we did a post-occupancy walkthrough with a person that was in a wheelchair that had to actually use the space and the feedback that he gave me was amazing he said, even though this is what's recommended, if you can think about it how I use it, right. this is how I would use it. And the takeaways from that was that uh, the lesson learned there really is that engaging with the users and designing with them gives you the best design solution and the perspective that you can 
uh, take to the next project or the next solution. That's a, yeah. Well, and what's interesting about this, right, is as you do this and as you evolve into this universal design as a designer, to a certain extent, it's putting and checking your ego at the door, and then also being open to what the opportunities are and what that feedback is. So, if you take either of those examples, the the, the first example with the the vision impairment, right? One of the things that we always like to do as designers, and we think this is the coolest thing ever, right, is butt glazing in really nice, huge <laughs> glass walls. The reality is there's lots of people out there that have vision impairments, and they can't tell the difference between a glass wall and an opening and a door frame. Right. And, and how are you thinking about that and doing that? And while that's great for me who has no visual impairment and I can see it and I'm a designer and I think it's the coolest clean line modern thing we've ever done, the reality is, is from a functional standpoint, is there ways that I can accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish without putting other people's experiences in jeopardy? And that's the same thing with the bathroom conversation. Yeah, we could just do the minimum. We can do what we think is right. But if we actually ask someone that goes through it, I mm-hmm. think we'd learn a lot. Yeah. I, I noticed that uh, I was taking a tour of a building the other day that had Braille on all of their wayfinding, which I thought was um, interesting. But then I thought, I can't find the light switch in my own bedroom in the dark. How is anyone expected to find these? You, you have to know where they are in advance to be able to find, you know, all the rooms were labeled, but you know, how do you even it's get to that, that point? It's interesting yeah. that you've mentioned that because that is something that uh, we talk about frequently when we have these discussions about universal design. And the solution's simple. You just provide a consistent location. You, put, you agree upon the location in the design, and it's always in that place. It's always on the right or left-hand side of the door. It's always uh, so many inches off the floor, and that includes the light switches, the wayfinding, and so forth. And once uh, a person who might rely on touch and uh, location of moving through a space knows that, they can navigate the space just as well as you and I can, more or less. And they're probably you know, a little smarter than I am about finding those things, like, yeah. like my light switch. I, I, had the, I was lucky enough to go to Rome this summer, and one of the things that I had noticed when I was walking around at all of the curb cuts, coming back to that, um, the pavement was different. And it had these uh, like polka dots, raised bumps on them. And then from the curb cut, the sidewalk pavement had grooves in it. And those grooves might turn a corner and they would go to the edge of a building. And I said, I'll bet that that's for people that are visually impaired. So they can find their way because it's a complex city. There's lots of elevation changes, weird corners and curves. And I asked a lot of locals and most of them had no idea. They'd never even noticed it before. Like, oh, I didn't know what that was for. Finally, I found somebody who said, yeah, that is designed specifically for people who are visually impaired. And it was one of those things. I happen to notice it because I look for details. But most people, it was invisible to them. It, it was just something that was there and they never thought about well, it. And the interesting thing is you start taking in that type of stuff. Nowadays, it's almost as applicable for the people buried in their cell phone. Yeah, like realizing that they're at the end of a sidewalk or that they're about to walk into a street, <laughs> right. right? Like they can they can feel that same tactile change right at their feet, which maybe it triggers them and maybe it actually prevents them from walking into the road. <laughs> it's a life safety necessity for but that's know, I mean I think distracted people, yeah, right. I mean, that's some <laughs> of the amazing thing of all these pieces is is as you do something for one person and you're mindful about the design, you actually influence so many other people's lives 
at the same moment. That's absolutely true. I mean, I think that if you think about, say, if you arrive at a strange building, for example, say you, you are visiting a an office tower that you've never been to before. Right. When you first enter that building, you have, to some degree, a disability. You don't know how to navigate that building. You don't know where to go. And you have to use a series of tools to get to your destination. Sure. Sometimes it's just simply asking the person at the desk, like, how do I get to room 504? You might look at some signage. You might look for signage and navigate following that. Well, a person who's visually impaired does the same thing. So if we can provide clarity in that, it helps everyone. Yeah. I, and that disability for people who are sighted and people who have some visual impairment begins to uh, back off once you've experienced the space over time. But that initial impression is that we're all somewhat at a disadvantage when we go to a new place or a strange place. And I think the same is to be said for the city. When you're walking through a city, it's, I can't imagine how yeah. uh, challenging that must be for people of any kind of you know, uh, difference from my own capabilities. Sure. Uh, yeah, I experienced some of that myself last week. We toured 10 different buildings in three days. And there were three of us that all had floor plans. And even coming off of the elevator, it took a while as we were all able-bodied, you know, with plans, it took us a while to get orientated. Uh, you know, we were all trying to get our Boy Scout orienteering badge that week, I suppose. We were one compass away from being able to find where we were going, but it, it was challenging. Well, I mean, so that being said, that challenge that you had, universal design offers that as a point of consideration for the design team. It might remind us of those challenges that we have and uh, suggest to the design team that we develop plans that might offer more clarity from floor to floor. We might try to uh, have a clear circulation scheme that we use from floor to floor. It might be a racetrack or it might be sure. a central corridor offloaded with office spaces. That's the first thing that we can do to offer clarity to the visitors to the building is in our plan design. If things were different from floor to floor, then that, that added complexity uh, it poses another design problem. And when we start to layer in other, hopefully, uh, informed decisions, which include things like uh, the environmental graphics or experiential graphics. Right. Or we might uh, begin to use multiple tools at our disposal, such as floor surfaces or wall colors and wall surfaces or lighting systems. All of those things come into play uh, from this perspective. So yeah. what I'm hearing is if we had a potential client that might be thinking about it, it would be better to know this sooner than later. Um, that say, hey, we want to make some universal design considerations in adoption of our space. Like if somebody were in HR or a facilities manager, and maybe they're, they're hearing this now, how do they start that conversation? Um, you know, like, how do we get to where we're considering this? I think that starts with what you just said. It's a conversation. Yeah. It's trying to get a little bit more of an understanding about what universal design offers, you know, from a perspective of a, you know, a company or from solutions point of view. A lot of, uh, of the companies that we work with have uh, 
design guidelines or toolkits. It might involve uh, a review of that. But often what we're finding is, is that we develop a, we have in-depth conversations, multiple conversations, workshops with uh, the people within these entities and try to develop that threshold of what universal design can offer them and try to work through their specific needs as an entity and give them a framework and give them a series of tools to then build on. And we always insist this, that universal design is always a 1.0 followed by 1.2, by you know version 1.4. It needs to be constantly revisited and it's an active uh, perspective rather than a series of single solutions. Well, <coughs> bless you. <laughs> I guess, Dominic, I want to ask you this question. So um, you're one of the most business-minded people I know. And you know, a lot of companies are concerned about return on investment. Um, does universal design add a layer of cost like sustainability when you're getting lead accreditation? You know, I mean, this isn't an accredited body. You're not going for universal design certification. Um, is it additional cost or is it just something people should be thinking about anyway? Like we've said a couple times, Brian, I think at the end of the day, it's just good design. Yeah. I don't think it is necessarily additional to cost. I think where it comes into play is when you're looking at retrofitting. Right. What do you retrofit? How much do you retrofit? Why do you retrofit? Um, what's your philosophy in terms of bringing the past forward? Lots of companies have buildings that are 20, 30, 40 years old, and they just don't accommodate people the way that they should. It wasn't something that was mindful. I'm... You know, with that, you know, as I say that, I mean, there there is potential slight cost to it, but the cost to it, I think, doesn't necessarily um, come to fruition in the way that people would think. So, for for instance, let's take a conference room. So we're sitting in a conference room right now. The actual cost of the conference room would be no different between the two, except for the fact that if you're building a universally designed conference room, you're thinking about someone that may have a, um, wheel, a disability that requires a wheelchair being able to access multiple sides of the table. Right. Not just one seat right by the door. Yeah, so it's in the order one that's marked on the table like a Panera, you know. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yeah, the one that's marked. At, this is very specifically your seat. Yeah, thank, thank God they don't really have that as much anymore. Um, but yeah, so in order to do that, you're talking about a conference room that's larger than what it might be otherwise. And if the conference room is larger than what it might be otherwise, then yeah, you might be talking about more square footage. Sure. Um, but I also believe that you're creating the right types of space and you're balancing out your workplace in such a way that that stuff kind of offsets itself. Um, I mean, I think to you build on that example, I mean, a, a universally designed conference room may not pre present itself as evidence of universal design to the casual viewer. A well-designed, universally designed conference room should look unlike any other well-designed conference room. But it, but right. to build on that, the yeah. one watch out with that though is is depending on who's looking at it and if they're a cost minded, schedule driven project manager <laughs> yes. or facilities person, they may look at it and say, "Well, why is this space so big?" Right. I think that what we've found is that the increases sometimes are just you know less than a foot in one direction or the other mm -hmm. from some of the minimums. It's not really a major change, but then you start layering into 
that design other considerations, people who have uh, limited hearing in certain ranges, for example. Conference rooms that have a reverberation time or are poorly designed acoustically uh, can be a real struggle for those people. So by adding some simple solutions like reviewing the acoustic properties of the room, potentially adding uh, you know, fabric pinup space uh, on one wall begins to deaden that room and it suddenly becomes a room that that person feels comfortable in and can participate in. Uh, a lot of conference rooms have uh, visual aids like a monitor, but also adding something like a marker board or some other kind of uh, writing surface allows a person who might not catch everything in the conversation to follow the notes that are written up on a wall or follow that kind of conversation. So there's a whole series of layers of, of solutions that make that a universally designed uh, conference room that may not cost a whole lot. And what you've done is uh, it, you didn't create a special uh, room separate from all of the other ones that provide that accommodation, and that's where it gets expensive. Yeah. If you're providing yeah. a separate accommodation that meets the guidelines for uh, particular needs, that's where you're getting expensive. But if it's, if it's rolled into your good design, uh, then it's available to everyone. Yeah. That makes sense. And I think that's where it gets expensive is when you have to provide these separate spaces, whether they're restrooms, whether they're uh, special offices, right? You know, gathering spaces. You can kind of think of the examples. Then uh, you've added cost to projects. But but then at that point, I would argue that you're not doing universal design. You're doing accommodation design in yeah. pockets. You're back to it, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's the difference, right? I mm -hmm. mean, if you're doing true universal design, it doesn't have to cost anymore, but your mindset has to be that that's what you care about. And that's where when Eric was talking about updating guidelines and looking at your global approach and all of those things come into play, because if you have people that aren't thinking about that, you're you're going to miss it. And what it's, it's here's an interesting story is we've seen that some of the projects that we have been involved in where we have designed them according to the baselines that were for universal design that came out of a lot of conversation, a lot of workshops with these clients, that people are like, oh, the, or, we spent a lot of money on this. Where's the universal design? Yeah. And I said, well, it all fits. We've met all of the guidelines. So they put up signs to point to what was done <laughs> in order to illustrate the solutions just to help educate and help uh, people understand what was done. And I think that's a great sign of success is that yeah. if, you have to, if you can't see it right off the bat and you have to be uh, directed to it, then I think we've done a great job. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes is, when you do something right, no one will be sure you've done anything at all. You know, it's, when IT is working perfectly, you don't think about those guys um, because everything's going the way it should. It's just working. Uh, it, it's interesting, though, that they had to, hey, look at what we did. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah very true. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. So I, what else, uh, any other things you would like to share before we go? What do you, sorry, they're doing hand signals outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, just, I just knew that you were coming to time there. Uh, yeah, I would yeah. say. So, yeah, to respect the time, what else would you like to say? Anything else on your mind, Eric? Uh, 
just to put you on the spot before we go. I mean, this has been pretty informative for me. Have you ever considered writing a book? You have a vast <laughs> and you know, Dominic was looking things up to to make sure he had his facts straight, but you were pulling things straight off the top of your head. Well, I've been involved <laughs> just to pick on you a little in depth for the past few years, but I I think that what BHDP can do at this point is like I mentioned before is we really are on the bleeding edge, the cutting yeah. edge of of developing examples, built solutions in the workplace that are the outcome of these conversations that we're having with our clients. And I think that what we have the opportunity to do now is, is do that self-evaluation. Sure. Is uh, review it, do that sort of measure, as we, so to speak, as that we call it internally. Right. And then I think that it's worthwhile sharing because I'm seeing uh, so many more businesses, HR people, facility managers uh, ask us the question. It's like, how do we get this universe and how do we come up with the solutions? And I think what uh, can begin to happen is we've gone through the drill many times right. that every time that we enter the conversation, the bar is set a little higher. We've got more experience. We've, ex- we've uh, worked through the solutions with... Uh, clients in similar circumstances, and each time it just elevates that conversation a little bit further. And so further. it's that continual growth and improvement that you get excited about too, right? Uh, yeah, no, I agree. Do you have a specific universal design solution that we've come up with for a client that you're most excited or proud of? Is there something you're like, man, we really got that right? No. <laughs> the reason I say that is because there is no simple one solution. Uh, I'll give you an example of one thing that I'm fairly proud of, and it's one that's under construction right now, and it's what we call a universal design restroom. I'm starting to call them power restrooms because um, one of the, the opportunities in doing this is that you can elevate the level of finish because you're considering every aspect of the design. Uh, and the complete solution of this restroom or these series of restrooms that we worked out, uh, I think are a great example to be proud of because I feel like they offer the best we can do in terms of universal design. And I feel like when one were to review the principles or the guiding principles of universal design, we considered every aspect of that. We considered color temperature of the light fixtures, for example. What's the color rendering index for someone in the restroom or looking at themselves in a mirror? We considered the sequence of actions of how one washes their hands, how one right. dries their hands, how one leaves the space. We considered uh, that there might be a companion that needs to assist someone. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, we considered uh, gender uh, considerations. You know, th- We had this particular client wanted to provide uh, for a, a, you know, a gender identities that may not be normative. And I, the list goes on. Yeah. But I think that uh, we also worked with directly with manufacturers. Uh, we're not, we weren't satisfied with just this, the, the grab bars, for example, that come off the shelf. We went directly to some very high-end manufacturers and talked to them and uh, are providing very elegant solutions to that, I think. So it's something that I think that uh, the idea of a comprehensive design solution right. is uh, something to be uh, pleased with. Well, thanks for that. Um, Dominic, did you have anything you'd like to 
add before we go as I wander away from my microphone like a crazy person? <laughs> I think Eric kind of stated it very eloquently. Yeah. And, and told a good story to cap it off. I mean, it, I've said it several times during this podcast, but ultimately, uh, good universal <laughs> design is just thinking about all people equally. Yeah. And if you and if you're doing that, and as a designer, if you're doing it in such a way where you, like I said, you check your ego at the door, you can create some really amazing spaces. Agreed. I, you know, it's interesting that we close with a story about restrooms because on Sunday, my daughter is nonverbal autistic. And she cannot be alone in the bathroom or else she'll either never come out or destroy the place. And I was at a restaurant on Sunday with her by myself and she suddenly had an emergency and needed to go to the bathroom. And we went to the men's room and the door was locked. So we went to the ladies' room and locked that door. So I have two, two options when I'm with her. Either I bring her into the men's room or I go into the ladies' room. Neither is a great option, right. you know. Um, but that's what I'm stuck with. And I think that's a great story. I think that just <laughs> offers more perspective right. to why we need other solutions than what we currently have. And, yeah. and the reality is there's lots of places thinking about this. I mean, just in our own town, the Cincinnati Zoo, for instance, has been making a lot of strides to make the experience better for families with children that have various types of disabilities. And one of the things that they've done is they've actually created a quiet room. Oh, wow. So for anyone that gets overstimulated and, you know, those, those kids That's that are amazing. on the autism spectrum that all of a sudden something just totally throws them out of whack, there's a place that they can go, they can calm them down and bring them back to center. Wow. I mean, so stuff like that is, is occurring. And, and like Eric said, I think this is a wave that's coming. And it's coming fast. Um, and it's quite honestly something that I'm pretty excited to say that we're engaged with and that we're thinking about. Yeah. And do you see a future for universal design where it just becomes accepted like ADA? Or is, is well, that still a box? The, the difference there? between, in my mind, between universal design and ADA is ADA is a checkbox. Yeah. Universal design is going to become to a point where there's firms that are just really good at thinking that way and designing that way. And they take all that into consideration. And as they, they're developing their younger staff, they're training them to think the same way. And they're pulling in employees that want to be thinking about all people in the human experience. And it's not about sculptural architecture or design for the sake of design. It's really about people-centric design. Yeah, it just makes good business sense. When companies have a philosophy that includes diversity and inclusion, they can put their uh, firm philosophy where their money is and demonstrate that, do demonstrable solutions to that. That's great. So, Well, thank you for that. Thank you, Eric Perrier. Thank you, Dominic Yacaducci. And thanks to you, the listener, for joining us at Trends and Tensions presented by BHDP. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. We hope you will join us again as we continue to have constructive conversations on another episode of Trends and Tensions.